scandals this week in both the presidential and gubernatorial races, but do they really matter to voters? This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm your host, Ashton Mara. After an NPR investigation into Jim Justice's business operations, the Democratic candidate for governor takes on Republican Bill Cole in the second West Virginia gubernatorial debate. A leaked tape where Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump can be heard describing sexually assaulting women causes waves in West Virginia politics. But will either scandal swing the vote? We ask two members of the state's press corps. And the race for state auditor is wide open. We meet the Republican in the race, coming up on Viewpoint. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. This week marked the second time the two major party candidates for governor met to debate the issues in the race. Republican Bill Cole and Democrat Jim Justice had their second debate at the Clay Center Tuesday in Charleston. Metro News talk show host Hoppy Kerchival served as the moderator. Joining me to recap what happened Tuesday is Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhaney and managing editor of the State Journal, Ann Ali. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you, Ashton. Thank you. So from week one to week two, what were your overall impressions of the candidates? Brad, do you want to start? Yeah, well, it was it was very similar, but I, I think that the first debate gave them uh, some momentum and some practice and some familiarity. Uh, I don't know that either one of them was an experienced debater, and so I felt that both were, were more confident this time. Uh, both debates asked them for more specifics and details, and I think you got a little bit more of that this time. I would definitely agree that they were maybe relaxed a little bit more, more comfortable with each other. Um, and you're right. We keep asking. We've been asking for months and months and months more detail, and I don't know that we are dragging it out of them yet. Um, but I did see Jim Justice had a lot more in front of him mm-hmm. during the debate. He had a booklet, papers, a notebook. He had a lot going on in front of him this second go-round. So they both responded to some state and national scandals. And let's start with this kind of continuing story about Donald Trump, the tape that was released last Friday where he's you know, essentially bragging about a sexually assaulting women. When asked about the issue, here's what Cole had to say. I issued a press release immediately saying that what Donald Trump said was wrong. It was it was wrong in in every respect. It was demeaning to women, and and uh, and, and I don't support one thing uh, within those comments. Having said that, in West Virginia, we have a choice, a very clear choice between a candidate, Donald Trump, that is going to support our fossil fuel industries, our coal and our natural gas industries, and we have a candidate. Jim's candidate, Hillary Clinton, that is out to destroy our coal industry. So, Ann, I'd love to get your opinion about his response because he essentially begins to separate himself from the candidate and then turns around to fully embrace him. Well, he's he's definitely in a tough position. And I know um, 
after the the recording, you know, was out everywhere, um, Senator Capito sent out a statement. And I remember thinking, wow, that's strong. She had said he, he needs to rethink his candidacy. Of course, Donald Trump being Donald Trump, he's not going to do that. Um, Senator Cole's statement um, was strong, but he didn't call for him to step down. And I think during the debate, uh, he took he took an approach that says he's not perfect, but he's my guy. He's what we've got. I don't like everything he has to say, um, but I like him better than the other options. And he is in a tough spot because if you ask any um, any analyst, anybody who's observed a lot of politics, that that's what Senator Cole needs to do is ride those Trump coattails. And it's really hard to do when they start getting a little yucky. Yeah, Brad, I mean, does this hurt Trump in West Virginia? It, it hasn't seemed that way so far, although, you know, we're, we're a largely rural state and I haven't seen polling. But if you read the tea leaves of the reaction of political figures like Bill Cole and even Jim Justice, um, they are seemingly not distancing them, themselves that much from, from Trump. And I was fascinated because uh, Jim Justice, the Democrat, uh, said he is not going to vote for anyone for president, but then went into some detail about he's friendly with the Trump family. Mm -hmm. He didn't say Donald Trump specifically. Right. You know, we in instead kind of got into this battle of who likes Donald Trump more or, or who knows Donald right. Trump better. You know, so the candidates also got into this NPR investigation um, released last week into Jim Justice's business operations. And that report found that Justice owed $15 million in federal, state and local taxes in several states, also in unpaid mine safety fines that are mostly in Kentucky. Um, here's what Justice had to say about that report. First and foremost, I would tell you that the coal business over the last four years and everything has been one tough deal. The next thing I would tell you is that irregardless of what anyone may say, I'm a big target. Now, I don't want, I don't want any sympathy or anything like that, but I am a big target. EPA is completely out of control. We pay annually over the last four years, and four years at a time when business was slow, we play, pay annually $70.7 I mean $70 million of taxes every year. Now, you have disputes, you have issues, you have payment plans, you work through it, but I'll tell you what I won't do. I didn't declare bankruptcy, did I? You saw every great coal company in the world belly up. They stiffed everybody. I just kept digging. Brad, is that response good enough for the people of West Virginia? I, th I think there's going to be some sympathy for that response because West Virginians do know that coal markets have struggled and that many of the major coal producers have declared bankruptcy. On the other hand, this is a job application to be the chief executive officer of the state. And I, to say, well, we, we paid what we could and we got around to it, the state's got to pay its bills and it's got to pay them on time. And, and so, you know, that may not fly as your applicant to be chief executive of the state. Uh, and I, I was actually a little surprised that, again, he sounded um, this week just like he did last week when talking about these debts and these obligations. And I even heard a few people say, well, it's no secret that he owes a bunch of money. Um, I, I think 
that this was shocking to most people to see the the depth um, and the detail of how much he owes and where. Um, and something that we've started to look at at the State Journal is what happens when you are the state's governor and you owe the state that much money. You know, is your appointed tax commissioner going to, to come knock on the door and say, excuse me, Mr. Governor, on, on, on your side job over here, can you maybe pay us the millions that you owe us? How is that going to work? There's no precedent for that. There's no um, there's nothing outlined. And no state officials that we talked to this week were willing to say, well, here's how it's going to work. So we did also spend a lot of time um, during this debate talking about balancing the budget, which is inevitably one of the main issues in this race. Justice answer was kind of about sweeping agency accounts and borrowing money or taking out a loan to balance the budget. Cole said that borrowing that money is not an option because inevitably taxpayers have to pay that money back. Um, and then he pushed when he was pushed about raising taxes, this, this is what he had to say. We are facing unprecedented times in West Virginia. We're facing a budget crisis like none other that we've ever faced. To take anything off the table, I think, is, is, is not prudent. So I'm going to throw this question to both of you. Are these realistic plans? Um, well, I'll go first. At least it sounds like, um, and you know, we know that Senate President Cole has experience with the budget. I know that the justice campaign keeps hammering him and saying, well, they wasted all this money, all this time. They couldn't agree on a budget. Um, but he's had his hands in there. This sweeping of accounts that Jim Justice says he wants to do, I'm pretty sure it has been done. Um, so at least just f- from their talking points, I'm not sure that Jim Justice is fully prepared to deal with the budget. I thought it was interesting that that Mr. Cole went as far as he did to say, you know, we we actually have major problems here and I can't discount everything being on the table. And I, I don't think the possibility of raising taxes is going to be popular among Bill Cole's base. And he didn't say we're gonna raise taxes, but he did say, we're in trouble and we can't discount any action we may have to take. Inevitably, what happens in budget talks is that when we talk about raising taxes, we just pick the taxes that are okay to raise, like the cigarette tax, right? Mm-hmm. This one is okay because there they are feel a, a lot of easier. Exactly, these sin taxes. I mean, Brad, I'm curious, do you think that's just allowing himself some space to take on these taxes that aren't as difficult to raise? Yeah, I suppose so. And, you know, I was thinking about where his credibility is and and if he has if he feels that if he's elected and he has uh, enough credibility built up already, he may be the perfect person to say we've just got to raise taxes. And And then he's got four years to say, you know, we did what we had to do. We were in real trouble. Right. Right. And I think he's sort of speaking from a place where he has had to run for elections before. And I I sort of feel like he does not want those words to come back and bite him later. So I, I think he's, um, like you said, maybe giving himself that little bit of cushion um, because he knows what it's going to entail, Ashton, like you said. And I know during last week's debate, um, the budget came up in a couple of different places. And I know Jim Justice said um, he didn't have the familiarity to be able to say what he would cut. And he also, I think later in the evening, said, well, no, we're, I'm not going to raise any taxes. We can't do that. We're all struggling. We, we need more hope. We need this. We need that. Um, but I, again, I didn't hear necessarily 
the plan. <laughs> so these were kind of the major issues, right? They're presidential, political picks, um, Jim Justice responding to his unpaid debts, and, and talk about the budget. But I'm just curious, you know, what else stuck out to you guys this week? Well, I keep talking about basketball. Uh, so Mr. Justice has been asked several times, and he has a consistent answer, whether he is going to continue uh, to pursue his passion, which is coaching the boys and girls basketball teams at Greenbrier East High School. And he has consistently said, yes, he intends to try to continue to do that. Basketball season is concurrent with the legislative session, and there are legitimate budgetary and financial issues that the governor will probably want to keep his eye on. He does have access, I believe, to a plane. So a person <laughs> yeah. could fly between Charleston and Greenbrier County. I don't know. It, it sounds it sounds like governor, I think, I think is a very demanding job. And I think a coach would want to put every bit of effort into being coach. He says he's going to give a thousand percent. But I wonder how that's resonating with people. I, I, my, my view on it is people will understand taking on the responsibility of governor as taking on a challenging job and wondering if they could provide that kind of life balance. I don't know that it's something people are going to vote – like <laughs> basketball is going to be the issue I vote on. But it, it speaks to the outlook of the entire campaign. And did anything else stick out to you? Um, you know, I think Brad nailed it. Yeah. I, I Last week I had said, I can't wait for the second one. Granted, I'm a great big political nerd, but I was saying I can't wait to hear what else they're going to say. I know that they're just getting warmed up, and I still feel like we could use more. You know, there's still a good bit of time. There's still more that can happen. Um, more more issues can be raised. Things can come out. So I, I just think it's really important to stay tuned in and keep pressing for more answers. And hopefully um, these campaigns will keep answering us and trying to get us those answers and those details. You know, I will also add that there was, um, I think, an ingredient to this political race that was not in the room that night, mm. but this person was outside. <laughs> and it's it was Charlotte Pritt. And mm -hmm. she was she was outside with her supporters. Um, and, I, you know, I wonder if if a certain segment of the Democratic Party, the, the more progressive segment, isn't looking at, at Bill Cole and Jim Justice and thinking, boy, those guys are just alike and I, I don't think they represent me and I'm going to pull the trigger for, for Charlotte Pritt. I, I just don't know how that's going to go down. Well, you know, they the party had a more liberal, progressive candidate in the primary in Jeff Kessler mm -hmm. um, and he did not win. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing up the, the Charlotte Pritt additive, um, because that is a very important aspect. Well, it seems to in this race, you know, put things at conflict, right? Because the state went so heavily for Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. whose platform was essentially the same as Charlotte Pritt's is at the state level. Um, and yet the Democrat that wins the race is, you know, almost identical to Bill Cole. You know, these guys have very similar stances and they try to portray themselves um, as very similar people. So it makes you wonder about the Democratic Party in the state of West Virginia, about what exactly is going on when Bernie Sanders really takes the helm and then Jim Justice is that gubernatorial candidate and they are nothing alike. There was a question posed to Justice, and I, I apologize because I didn't quite catch the full question. I didn't quite catch the full answer. But it was something about, do you represent that wing of the mm -hmm. party? Yeah. And his answer was something like, you know, I represent hardworking 
Democrats. So I was I was looking at my Twitter feed and there were people who identified themselves more with the sort of Kessler wing of the party who seemed, I thought, offended by the way that answer came out. Um, so I think it's an interesting dynamic. Right. I think it will definitely be interesting to see um, what happens just generally, I think, in all of the races and how the Democratic Party holds up. Because, you know, we saw this in 2014. They were not expecting to lose both sides of the legislature. And I think that they're still recovering from that. I think they still aren't really sure who they are as a party anymore. They're very splintered. That's that's very true. And I think it will be interesting to see how much Charlotte Pritt gets because I would have to check. Um, but if she gets 5% of the vote, then next year the Mountain Party can be included in debates. And I don't know that that has ever happened in right. West Virginia. And Eli with the State Journal, Brad McElhaney with Metro News. Thank you guys for being here. Thank Thanks. you so it was much. Fun. This week, three West Virginia newspapers, newspapers located in counties that have historically been tied to coal, decided to back Democrat Hillary Clinton over Republican Donald Trump in the race for president. The Bluefield Daily Telegraph, Beckley's Register Herald, and Fairmont's Times West Virginian published their presidential picks over the weekend. All three papers are owned by the same company. The choice is an unpopular one in coal country, something the papers were willing to point out. The Daily Telegraph's editorial board wrote, quote, President Obama's environmental and energy policies have created economic hardship in West Virginia, and we realize it would be easy to mark a ballot based on bitterness and anger over the loss of jobs associated with coal mining. Yet no one can dispute that we need to expand our economic base beyond its coal dependence in a world that is increasingly moving to other forms of energy. However, we cannot embrace Donald Trump, a candidate who lies, disparages women and minorities, and lacks fundamental skills in politics, worldliness and demeanor, end quote. The two candidates at the top of the ticket inevitably have an impact on the down-ballot races, but West Virginia has eliminated straight-ticket voting this year, so it's possible, according to longtime Democratic Treasurer John Perdue, who's up for re-election, that Hillary's lack of support in West Virginia won't be a problem for his party. West Virginia now uh, will, is like a checkerboard. They'll go back and forth across that ballot, and so with the changes that was made, that there's no more straight party voting in this state, I think uh, that really brings a focus on different races down the ticket because they have to go all the way down to find you. It hasn't been that long, though, since Purdue's party rarely had to worry about the Republicans winning a race over a Democrat, especially a Democratic incumbent. But in 2014, things really changed in West Virginia. After 80 years of holding a legislative majority, the Democrats lost that hold of both the state House and Senate and shifted the nation away from thinking of West Virginia as a solidly blue state. Ann Lee took a deeper look at what happened leading up to the flip and whether voters' feelings then will impact this year's state legislative races. On November 4, 2014, decades of Democratic reign in the state legislature came to an end. It has been a big night for the GOP as Republicans pulling ahead in some major races tonight. The GOP took control of both the House and Senate for the first time in decades. The West Virginia Republican Party managed to snag 64 out of the 100 seats in the House. And after the polls closed, the Senate was tied. That is, until GOP leaders convinced then-Democratic State Senator Daniel Hall to switch parties. He couldn't be reached for comment for the story. In the end, the Republicans took 18 out of 34 available seats in the Senate. That was a punch in the gut. 
That's Senator Robert Beach, a Democrat representing the 13th District in Monongalia and Marion counties. He was at home when he realized that although he had won his seat, his party had lost its grip on the state. You just didn't see that one coming. Uh, you knew it would be close. But then we go back and you, know, you can play hindsight's twenty twenty, and then we can see the writing on the wall even when that scenario. So, yeah, the writing was there. In 2014, the state was still at a low point. By November, the unemployment rate was still high at 6 percent, and about 19 percent of the state lived in poverty. Mary Beth Beller is an associate professor of political science at Marshall University. She says the Democratic Party's issue in 2014 was also about messaging. Party leaders told West Virginians that the National Democratic Party wouldn't help them. However, local West Virginia leaders and legislators will. And that sends a mixed message. When Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008, conservative West Virginia Democrats struggled to unite the party around the national leader that appeared to be against their way of life, a life that revolved around coal, 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 coal was king and war on coal stuff. Jeff Kessler is the Senate minority leader. He used to be the Senate president before the majority flip in 2014. There's a war going on, you got to blame somebody. And who are you going to blame? There's a downturn in our state's economy. You're going to blame the party in charge. That was the Democrats. Looking back, Kessler said the Democratic Party should have better communicated their successes to the people and transitioned the state out of its coal-driven economy before too many jobs were lost. And regardless who was in charge, they were singing from the same hymn book. And there was not enough vision out there pushing for diversification that should have been occurring under the Democrat leadership as well. Two years later, Kessler says he still struggles to see a way forward for his party. We seem to still continue to, to divorce ourselves or refuse to embrace any type of uh, progressive philosophy that historically has, has been uh, the backbone of the Democratic Party. We sort of run from it. Today, the Democratic Party hasn't changed much since its downfall in 2014. It still sends a mixed message to voters, the war on coal rhetoric still prevails, and even the candidate at the top of the state ticket, Jim Justice, refuses to back the Democratic Party's nominee for president. It's preposterous for a coal man to be a, a supporter of Hillary Clinton. Kessler, who also ran to be the Democratic Party's candidate for governor this year, wishes his party would take a socially liberal stance to attract the young vote, an electorate that strongly supported Bernie Sanders in the May primary. As for the party that seems to be on the up and up, state Republican Party chairman Conrad Lucas has been wasting no time doing what the Democrats have yet to do, send a clear message to voters about what the Republican Party is about. We are the conservative party. We are the party that stands for traditional values. We're the party that is the pro-life party, that, uh, that we are the party that supports the Second Amendment. Lucas agrees with Kessler that the state's flip from blue to red had to do with coal, energy, and social issues. But for him, the flip in 2014 came as no surprise. Signs of the impending flip came as early as 2000, when President George Bush won West Virginia. It was the first time a Republican president had won the state in 16 years. That same year, now Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito won her first race in the House of Delegates. And now, he says... The Democrat Party in West Virginia is rapidly just moving to complete irrelevance. 
Lucas says his party's clear message is paired with a focus on voter data collection to personalize outreach. And then there's the party's candidate recruiting efforts. Candidate recruitment is such an under-recognized component to winning elections, but it's the baseline. You can't win an election if you don't have a candidate. And uh, historically, there have been a lot of vacancies in, in the ballot for the Republican Party. But as individuals are campaigning in every geographic region, every district of the state, that encourages more people to vote and more people to vote Republican. As of this fall, 30 percent of West Virginia voters are registered as Republican, while 45 percent are registered as Democrats. But that latter percentage has been falling since 2012. Lucas says that as the Republican Party develops, he expects ideological variety among conservative candidates in future races. And he says he doesn't mind sharing his party's strategy. The Democrats are always welcome to take a leaf out of the Republicans' book. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Ann Lee. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. J.B. McCuskey may be a familiar name to some folks in Charleston. A resident of the capital city, McCuskey was elected to represent the 35th House of Delegates District in 2012. But this year, he's attempting to appeal to a much wider swath of the electorate. McCuskey is the Republican running for auditor. A statewide office left vacant this year when longtime auditor Glenn Gaynor retired. McCuskey sat down with me in September to discuss his ideas for the office and the race that isn't getting quite as much attention on a statewide scale. So the auditor's office this year is an open seat. Longtime auditor Glenn Gaynor left the office to work in the private sector, yet this race isn't getting as much attention as the governor's race or the attorney general's race. And part of the reason why is because it's difficult for people to understand what exactly goes on in the auditor's office. So what do you see as the most important functions that the auditor serves. Well, that brings up two interesting points. And and let me start by going over what the auditor's office does. So the auditor's office has generally five very important divisions. The first is the auditor is the securities commissioner for the state of West Virginia. So all the people who sell stocks or timeshares or any of the secured transactions uh, in West Virginia are regulated uh, by the state auditor's office. They're also licensed by the state auditor's office. Secondly, the auditor is the commissioner for delinquent lands in the state of West Virginia. So all the property that comes off the books as being uh, as the tax is being unpaid gets sold by the auditor's office. And as we've seen in Boone County, this is a wildly important function because our schools are funded from the revenue from the property tax uh, that is collected in each individual county. Third, the auditor's office has what's called uh, the the information division, essentially. And so they're in charge of ensuring that all the divisions of state government are provided with all the financial information for the state. Uh, that division also pays all the state employees as well as the state uh, contracts. Fourth, the state auditor is the has what's called the uh, chief inspector's division. And this division is in charge of overseeing and ensuring that uh, the cities and counties have audits that are in compliance Uh, with federal standards to ensure that they're able to get federal funding and also to ensure that their bond ratings remain high enough for them to borrow money to complete the projects uh, that cities and counties do, like sewer and water projects, things of that nature. And then lastly, uh, and there's a few other things in there, um, but in the interest of brevity, let let me just say that the auditor is a member of the Board of Public Works. 
And this seven-member group is a quasi-legislative group that's two main functions are to buy and sell state property and to set the tax rates for the utilities in the state of West Virginia. And so all that being said, the, the auditor's office is actually incredibly important. It has been sort of a, an unsung office, I think probably because the person who was there before me had the office for so long. So it sort of became uh, a known entity. So I do want to talk about transparency a little bit and your plans for transparency, but let's start a little bit more specific into a program that the office essentially has to work with. Um, So because of the functions of this office, you'll inevitably be doing a lot of work with OASIS, the computer operating system that the state spent tens of millions of dollars to implement. There have been plenty of issues reported with the system, but the governor's office maintains that it's going to modernize state government, it's going to save money by finding efficiencies, and it's going to make operations, it's going to make government operations more transparent. So as a member of the legislature, you received reports about the progress of this system as it was being implemented. Do you think this was a good investment for the state? It's a great question. Um, I, my initial reaction is, is that something that the state probably needed at some point, um, but we probably started on it at the wrong time. And when you start to look at priorities, uh, I don't know that a, prior, a $150 million priority of our state uh, was a new computer system. That being said, uh, we have what we have, and we can't go back now. So the the first thing that, that I need to do if I'm the next auditor is we need to get this finished because the taxpayers of this state have spent dearly for a system, and they deserve the results that they were promised. What do you mean get this finished? What is left to do in your eyes? Uh, well, there's a, a multitude of training that needs to happen. There are lots and lots and lots of our public servants who haven't been trained yet on the program, and its functions just aren't complete. Um, you know, it's one of those things where – no software program is probably ever complete. I mean, things sort of become obsolete almost as soon as they're created these days. Um, But it just isn't done yet. Well, let's talk about one specific problem that the state has encountered with this system, one that came to light about a year ago now. Um, Oasis required a switch from a twice-monthly to a bi-weekly pay system for state employees. And a legislative audit last year found that as we made that switch, there was a calculation done within the Oasis system that actually will result in overpaying state employees some $50 million over the course of 10 years. Heading into the 2016 legislative session, lawmakers were up in arms over the issue, and then it just kind of went away. It disappeared. You know, the previous auditor, Glenn Gaynor, said this isn't a problem. At the end of the day, we're still going to save more money than is going to be spent by this mistake, and he wanted to leave it alone. At this point, that's what we've done. We've left it alone. So do you agree with the former auditor that the calculation can't be fixed? Or would you push lawmakers to go back to that twice-monthly system? It is interesting that that issue just sort of went away. Um, But I believe that the calculation has been worked out. Um, But I don't believe that we should over or underpay any of our public servants. And I think they would tell you the same thing. They want to be paid exactly what they're supposed to be paid and not a penny more. And so if there is a problem, I can assure you it will be fixed immediately. Um, And I don't know that it's possible to really understand the scope of the problem until you're there. And so I think that Glenn probably had a pretty unique perspective on how the calculation was working, probably more so than anybody else. Um, And so I think the actual auditor will have the best view and understanding of that mathematics to know whether or not there is a problem. 
Let's get into the transparency issue. In early September, you came out in support of an Ohio website that essentially allows the public to track the spending at the state level. I've been to this website. You can go in. You can click on a certain agency. It brings up a pie chart. It's awesome. It, it talks about you know um, what the agency, a breakdown of what the agency is spending its money on. But then there's also a, a breakdown of the vendors. So the top vendors that the state of Ohio is paying. We have that website. The treasurer's office has a website called transparencywv.gov. And I think I've, that's actually on the auditor's website, but it's on both. Okay. So the 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 treasurer has explained it actually that it's available from almost any state government website. I went around, poked around on that one a little bit. It's essentially the same thing. Sure. Do you see a difference in that? Why why did why is there a need to spend money on something that we already have? Well, I didn't say we needed to spend money necessarily. Um, what I know is is that uh, all the major rankings have us with about a B or a B minus as far as government transparency is concerned. Uh, and the state of Ohio has an A. They're the number one state in the country. And what I've spoken to the treasurer of Ohio about is not necessarily how we can spend more money on our website, but how we can get our ranking to be the same as theirs, how we can provide the same level of transparency that they do. And so the hope is is that we can – just speak with the people who are doing it best, troubleshoot what we got, and uh, and fix it easily because that would be the most ideal and the least expensive way to do it. Do you think this website is the key or are there other things that you're learning from other states that we could do better too? Uh, well, I think one of the main keys is letting people know that it's there. Um, and so one of the biggest problems that our website has is that it's sort of buried at the bottom of a couple of, of government websites and and the average West Virginian probably doesn't even know that they're empowered to do so. Your opponent in this race is a former employee of the auditor's office. And the tax department. Which means that she has some degree of experience. So why are you a better choice for this office? I'm a better choice for this office because there's a multitude of functions that the office uh, covers. Uh, it's not just the CID function, which uh, interestingly came over from the tax department in 2001. So the, the, the local and county government function isn't constitutionally part of the auditor's office. It was part of the tax department. Um, and the remaining portions of the office, which are securities and delinquent lands and and, um, and all the government information as well as contract analysis, really requires a skill set that I believe I have uh, pretty, pretty well, which is a lawyer uh, as well as a legislator, somebody who understands how to craft uh, and analyze legislation as well as contracts and somebody who's been involved uh, in land sales, even delin- delinquent tax land sales. Um, so these are all things that I have a pretty unique skill set for. Uh, and that along with what I believe is is a focus on efficient and smaller government from, from my political standpoint, I think is really important, especially in light of our government's incredible budget struggles. I think we need somebody who is who's really dedicated to to finding the savings and ensuring that that we're we're getting every penny out of every dollar of state tax dollars. Because at the end of the day, it's never our money. It's never the government's money. It's always your money. Um, And I think that um, remembering that at a state government level is important, and I think we need to get back to that. That was J.B. McCuskey, the Republican candidate for auditor. You can listen to an extended version of this interview at wvpublic.org. McCuskey's Democratic opponent in the race, Marianne Clater, will be featured on our October 27th podcast, so keep an eye out for that in the coming weeks.
This has been Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Next week, we continue to meet the candidates running for statewide office with a dive into the race for treasurer, pitting Republican newcomer Ann Erling against 20-year office holder treasurer John Perdue. Viewpoint is available on wvpublic.org or subscribe on iTunes. Follow the show at ViewpointWV on Twitter. I'm Ashton Mara. Thanks for joining us.